Would you stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word? Looking at verses 8 through 13 here in 2 Peter. This is the word of the Lord. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for its power in our lives, for how your Holy Spirit uses it to enlighten our eyes, our hearts to your truth. Father, by it we pray that you would help us to persevere as we await the return of Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As we have moved here into the third chapter of 2 Peter, our subject has changed from Peter specifically addressing the false teachers who had worked their way into the church now to, a, to correcting their false doctrine. And their primary false doctrine was that Jesus was not going to return. And so as we began to see last week, Peter begins to confront that idea and we will see the remainder of his argument today. As I considered this subject and uh, how to work our way into this text I, this week, I began to think about the many parables of Jesus that he told during his earthly ministry that speak to this subject. Now, I'm not sure if this is fully true or not, but I think at least one of, if not the most common parable that Jesus told was what I would consider parables of waiting. It, it's the parables, by the way, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to uh, church, parables are un, not true stories. They're false fi fictional stories that tell uh, a, uh, that, that give a true meaning, right? So the parables that Jesus told were just stories. They didn't actually happen. They were just stories. Jesus actually told them with it, with a central meaning, a, a purpose, Right. And Jesus would often tell parables of, of waiting where someone is waiting on someone else. For instance, Jesus tells the story of the parable of the talents where a master gives to his servants a differing amount of money, goes away, and then those servants then utilize that money, some well, some not well, and as they await the return of their master. 
There's also the parable of the unfaithful servant who is supposed to be waiting on his master return and managing his master's household, but instead of doing it well, he abuses his master's household and even the other servants in it until the master returns. There's the parable of the thief and the guard at the master's house who the guard is supposed to stay awake and watch out for uh, the master's house, but the the guard falls asleep when the thief comes in the second or third watch of the night. There's the parable of the 10 virgins who are awaiting the bridegroom and half of them had enough oil for their lamps as they wait and half do not. These are all parables of waiting. And in every case, Jesus is talking about how we, his followers, are to wait for his return. And how we are to wait responsibly for his return. That that we are to be obedient servants of our master as we look longingly for the return of Christ. And this is the subject that Peter will address here in these verses. The main idea of today's sermon is simple. How believers wait for the return of Jesus matters. The the manner in which we wait matters. It, It actually matters. And this is why Jesus told parable after parable about waiting for the return of the master or waiting for the return of the bridegroom. And it is why Peter now taking up the subject, challenging the false teaching of the false teachers in the church that Jesus would not return, says this very thing, how you wait matters. So I pray today that God would challenge the way in which we await his return. Last week, we looked at the certainty of his return. If you were not here with us last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon online because this is really a second part to that. I am not going to argue for the certain return of Jesus this week because I already have. I did that last week. So with the established idea in our mind that Jesus will one day return, now we turn our attention to what do we do in the meantime? First, Peter talks of the incredible patience of the Lord towards his people. Look at verses eight and nine. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, these two verses, verses 8 and 9 of 2 Peter 3, are probably the most often taken out of context and misused and abused by the church or people within the church today. Uh, 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, which if you're familiar at all with with teachings within the church, these are often quoted verses, both of them, often not quoted together, which is part of the problem, um, but also not quoted as they exist within the context of this chapter and exist within the context of what Peter is actually saying, contradicting the false teachings that were prevalent of his day. What Peter is writing about here is our response, again, as we await for the Lord, and he points our attention towards God's patience 
What Peter is doing here in verse 8, by the way, he is drawing from the Old Testament. We will see that in a minute, which he has already done previously. But Peter is not intending to give us a literal corollary between God's timing and man's timing. Meaning that Peter is not saying a thousand years for us is literally one day for the Lord. That's not what Peter is saying. And to think that's what Peter is saying is to miss the point entirely. You say, why address that? Are there actually people that believe that? Yes, there are. When I was studying for our series in Daniel, the series that preceded this, I told you during that series, I kind of took a deep dive into what I thought was some pretty bad teaching about the end times. And one of those deep dives that I took led me towards an entire realm of teaching centered around this very idea that a, a thousand years for us is just a day for the Lord. And so that if we do our math right, and again, anytime we try to interject math into the scripture, we're, we're going in the wrong direction, right? But if we do our math right, then we can determine when God's going to come back. Because, you know, the, you go all the way back to the beginning and the earth is created in so many days. And then now a day is like a thousand years and we do this math and it's going to give us the secret to when Jesus is going to return. Listen. Don't put your faith in anything like that. Because that's not what Peter, it's not why he wrote this. So let's consider what he's actually pointing us to in the Old Testament. It'll help us to see it. In Psalm 90, which is where Peter is drawing this saying from, is, is the beginning of Psalm 90. We read this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and, say, dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Here's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 90 and what Peter is saying in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not like us. He does not exist within time as we do. He operates within time, but the Lord sees all time equally. So for us, a thousand years, which is a figurative expression, not intended to be taken literally, a figurative expression for a very long time. Can we all agree that a thousand years from our perspective is a very long time? Sure we can. None of us will live for a thousand years in our earthly bodies. A thousand years ago, very long time. A thousand years in the future, a very long time. These are but a day to the Lord. They are, as the psalmist says, like a watch in the night to the Lord. That, that for the Lord, who does not exist in time as we do, but operates in time and sees all time equally, that the Lord is inherently different. As the psalmist says, even before the foundation of the world. The Lord is God. He is different. And so because the Lord is different, then the Lord, Peter argues in verse 9, is not slow to fulfill his promises. So because the Lord is different than us, we don't get to look at the Lord and say, why are you so slow in doing that which you have promised to do? Which, by the way, is the argument that the false teachers made that Peter addressed last week. Remember what they were saying? They're saying that things have just gone on since the father have been asleep. Basically, they were saying if Jesus was going to come back, he would have done it already. 
If the end was going to come, it would have already happened. And this is just within the second generation of people of the New Testament church. We're now 2,000 years on. And yet we even don't get to look at the Lord and say, why are you so slow? There's one of the Old Testament prophets that did this. He's got probably the best name of all the Old Testament prophets, Habakkuk, right? We don't often refer to Habakkuk. I'll one day preach through that book. It won't take very long because there's one central theme to the minor, what's known as a minor prophet, one of the shorter prophets of the Old Testament, Habakkuk. He likely lived during the time of Jeremiah, so before the events of Daniel that we saw in the previous series, before Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem and took Judah into exile. It's only three chapters, the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, and it is all about the timing of God. It begins, the book does, with the prophet's cry, how long, O Lord? The prophet is looking at the wickedness of his people and the people of that day were certainly wicked. They had devoted themselves to numerous false gods, some of which were even sacrificing their children to, to, to appease false gods. And the prophet says, how long, O Lord? And in chapter one, the Lord answers him and says, don't worry, I'm gonna take care of this. And the prophet again says, yeah, but when? Look around, when, what are, when, is the, when are you going to do this? And at the beginning of chapter two, the Lord answers Habakkuk a second time and he says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may, he may run who reads it. For still, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This is what the Lord says to Habakkuk. Now, by the time you get to the end of chapter three, Habakkuk is changed. He's a, he's a changed man. He, he's like, I'm just gonna wait on the Lord. And this is what we do. This is what it means to wait in an appropriate way for the return of Jesus, which is sure. We saw that last week, it's sure. And how we wait matters. And one of the things that we do to wait is that we do so patiently. Because the Lord is patient. So we then must also be patient. But we're not by nature patient people. Well, let me, I won't speak for you. I'm not by nature a very patient person. My children will tell you, dad only likes to say things one time. <laughs> That's all the times I think I need to say something for then someone to do what I've said for them to do. I also hate waiting in lines. I will move heaven and earth to not have to wait in a line. Okay, I hate waiting in line. I'm not a very patient person. It's something the Lord works on me on. And maybe you're similar. Maybe you're kind of like me in that. And, and we see this. Habakkuk wasn't a, a very patient person. Then we see another Old Testament prophet, Jonah. The Old you know the story of Jonah? Jonah and the whale. Wasn't Jonah and the big fish. Jonah and the whale just sounds a lot better. That's why we say that. We don't know what it was, some kind of sea creature that swallows Jonah up because he's running from the Lord, right? And the Lord told him, go to Nineveh, and Nineveh were the enemy of Israel. Go to Nineveh and proclaim, the, uh, proclaim repentance. And Jonah's like, I'm not doing that. So he gets swallowed by a big fish and ultimately repents and turns and goes to Nineveh anyway and proclaims uh, repentance to Nineveh. And what does Nineveh do? They repent, right? And Jonah has this like really honest conversation with the Lord 
in Jonah chapter four. He says, we're told, the narrator tells us, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. He was angry that Nineveh repented. He was angry that Nineveh listened to his message. And he prayed to the Lord, we're told, in verse two of chapter four. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I wanted us to, to read that from Jonah 4 because it's actually the eighth time in the Old Testament, the eighth and final time in the Old Testament, chronologically, that that one phrase shows up, that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That phrase actually goes all the way back to Exodus 34, where Moses is on a mountaintop carving for the second time tablets out of stone so God could write his law in it because the first time he had to, he broke them destroying a false idol that the people had created for themselves while they did not wait patiently. And the Lord proclaims what? To, to, To Moses in Exodus 34, he proclaims his patience to him. And then seven additional times, some in the Psalms, some in the prophets. One other time during the period of of Moses's life, we see the same proclamation that the Lord is patient. And Jonah says, I knew that. I knew you were patient, which is why I didn't want to go proclaim the good news of God to my enemies. The Lord is patient. And so we should be patient as we wait because for us, a thousand years may seem like a long time. For us, it may seem as if the Lord is delaying his promise, but he's not because he's God, we're not. And so he is patient and we then should be patient because, look at verse nine, because he is patient towards us. Peter writes, he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now that thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years is one of the two places in verses eight and nine that is often misused and abused. This is the other. There are those that want to make verse nine read as if everyone will one day be saved. And here's, the, here's the, the logic of their argument, that God wills for all people to be saved and that there is nothing that can stand against the will of God. Therefore, one day, all people will be saved. This is the argument known as universalism. The problem is that's not what the scriptures teach, as in all of the scriptures, but it's also not in any way what Peter is saying. Peter has already in multiple places in this one letter talked about that at least for the false teachers, damnation awaits them, judgment awaits them. He will again talk about the, the coming judgment of the Lord here in just this passage. So that cannot be what, first, what 2 Peter 3, 9 means. For us to really get to an understanding of what Peter is saying, I think we have to ask a very important question, and that is, who is the Lord patient towards? He says in verse nine, but is patient towards you. Some English translations use the word us, including himself, the writer and the recipient. Who is you in this passage? 
You in this passage is the recipient of the letter. Who is the recipient of the letter? The church. It's not the false teachers. It's not the people who have wandered astray following the false teachers. It is those who are persevering in Christ. That is who Peter is writing the letter to, and that is the you that the Lord is patient towards. Now, that makes you what's known as the antecedent in this phrase, meaning it is first and then everything else that follows is influenced by that. So when he says, but the Lord, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, the any and the all modify the word you. So we're not being told here that the Lord is somehow wishing for something, number one, that he can't accomplish, or number two, wishing for something that is contradictory to what Peter has already said in the letter and what scripture plainly teaches. The you here is the church that God is bringing to repentance. The, the, the you is that the people of God that he is patient towards. God, my friend, is patient towards you. All of this, remember, is speaking to our patience, that we must be patient people. Why? As we await the return of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord has been patient towards you. I told you I'm not a very patient person. And probably the height of my impatience is not directed outwards. It's directed inwards. I'm often impatient with myself. I often look at my own sin and my own lack of progress towards sanctification and my own lack of obedience towards God and I'll think internally, Ryan, what is wrong with you? Can't, shouldn't you be better than this by now? Shouldn't you do better than this by now? Why are you still reveling in some of your sin that you've been reveling in for years? Shouldn't you be better than this by now? But here's what Peter says. Oh, Ryan, the Lord is patient with you. And hear me today, friend. If that's you, the Lord is patient with you. Let, let that bring some comfort and peace into your life in this very moment as we await for the return of the Lord. Know this, the Lord is patient with you. However, this passage speaks of the Lord's patience towards us in the same way that Paul speaks of the patience of the Lord to those who are under judgment in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is concluding a thought about those who are under judgment. And he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So Paul says that the Lord is patient even towards those who are still dead in their trespasses and sin, some of which by the power of God's Holy Spirit will be brought from death to life, but many of which he later says in that passage because of their hard hearts will not and that God's wrath remains on them. So God's patience extends, even if just for a time, to those who are outside of his church and will always remain outside of his church so that they are without excuse. So we can speak of the patience of the Lord in a specific sense being extended both towards the people of God, that he is patient towards us, and towards the world, 
He is patient towards them, some of which will come to faith and repentance, many of which will not, but they will be without excuse because the Lord was patient towards them. So then we must be patient people as we await the return of Jesus. Do you see how doctrine drives action for us? So we wait, we patiently await the return of Christ. Second, the coming, the sudden coming of the Lord in righteous judgment. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter certainly here is quoting Jesus because on numerous occasions, Jesus told Peter and the disciples that the day of the Lord, the return of the son of man would come like a thief in the night. Well, what does it mean? And this is one of the most common ways that the New Testament authors, both Jesus and the apostles as they write, describe the return of Jesus. They they say over and over, it's like a thief in the night. Now, what does that mean? It means it will be sudden. It means it will be unexpected. It's like those parables that I began in the introduction with. None of those people were appropriately waiting. And so they were all surprised when the master came. They were, those virgins were surprised when the bridegroom came. That guard was surprised when the thief came. It means that it will be sudden. It will be a surprise to many. Because there will be those who will give in to the the false teaching that was prevalent in Peter's day and just think, ah, that's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen for me. That's not gonna happen. It hasn't happened yet. It's not going to happen now. But the reality is the Lord will return as a thief in the night. And when he does, he will come with his righteous judgment. You may not realize this, but today is what is known as Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday happens 50 days after Easter. Today is the 50th day after Easter. It's seven weeks after Easter. We call it Pentecost Sunday because it follows in the Hebrew festival of Pentecost, which was 50 days after Passover. And on the day of what we know as the day of Pentecost, recorded for us in Acts chapter two, the the Hebrews had gathered again in Israel to celebrate the festival of Pentecost, and that was the day that the Lord sent his Holy Spirit upon his disciples who were in the upper room, and they go out into the streets and begin to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And Peter, who now is writing this letter for us, preaches in Acts 2 what is known as the first sermon of the Christian church. And it happens on Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit proclaims a sermon. And do you know what his text was? It was Joel, another one of these minor prophets, often relegated to kind of the side we don't spend a lot of time on. Try to deal some with the minor prophets today. I think it's helpful for our understanding of this. But that's what Peter does. Peter addresses directly Joel chapter two. Now I want to read, not from what Peter says in Acts two. I just want to read it from Joel, even though it's the same words. He says in Joel two, where this is what the prophet says. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my 
spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in, the Mount, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now remember what we've already been told. The Lord is not slow, right? However, when we read Joel 2, which Peter uses in his sermon in Acts 2 on the first day of Pentecost, there seems as if a place in this story where someone can say, Lord, what are you waiting for? And here's why. Because in Joel 2 verses 28 and 29 happened, they're fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, the original day of Pentecost, the first one in Peter's day. And this is why Peter looks to that passage and says to his kinsmen, this is what the Lord is doing. The Lord has poured out his spirit. This is what is happening in this day. But then we get to verses 30 and 31 and 32, and those didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. This is speaking about a day that is yet to come. So verses 28 and 29 happened 2,000 years ago. We would call this the inauguration of the last days. But verses 30 through 32 are looking towards an event yet to come, the consummation of the last days. And we live between verses 29 and 30. Now, if you were here for the Daniel series, I talked about what was known as prophetic telescoping, right? And this is one of those examples where two things seem to happen in the prophecy right beside each other, but in reality, there's a long span between the two. And this is a great example of it because 28 and 20, verses 28 and 29 are in the rear view mirror. Verses 30 through 32 are still sometime in the future. And we live in that moment where that requires patience of us. And yet we must be aware that it will come suddenly. We don't know when this will come. We can look back and know when the Holy Spirit came, but we don't know when these other things will take place. We don't know when the awesome day of the Lord comes, as Joel says. But mind this, it is coming. And though in the faithful church of God is expected to not be taken surprise by it. Now, that's not a statement that says, don't be taken surprised by it, so work out some crazy kind of math that lets you know when it's going to come. You say, why do you keep going, going to that? I keep going to that because there's likely people sitting in this room that are taken in by that. You've watched somebody on YouTube try to explain it to you, and you're like, oh, that sounds really good. I can promise you this, it doesn't. I, just take my word for it, it just doesn't. Because us living expectantly and to not be taken off guard by the sudden return of Christ doesn't mean we've done the math and figured out when it's going to happen. It means we're doing what Peter is going to tell us to do in the very next line. So you ready? The ongoing practice of righteousness while awaiting our perfected righteousness. Look at verse 11 and 12. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be 
in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. You want to know how we wait patiently? You want to know how we keep from being taken off guard by the sudden return of Christ? We live holy and godly lives. That is the answer that Peter gives. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be? What are we supposed to do in the meantime? And he answers it simply, be holy and godly. Now, if you've been here for these seven sermons, you probably, I hope, have been paying enough attention to know that Peter is doing something here. He's returning to his original thesis. He's returning to the reason that he wrote the letter. Go back to the beginning of 2 Peter. Starting in verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Holiness and godliness. Life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter returns now at the end of his letter to what he has clearly stated at the beginning of his letter. Believers have everything they need to persevere to the end. And so as we patiently await the end to not be taken off guard, what kind of people should we be? We should be people that are living like he told us to live at the very beginning of the letter. Because God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. So let me just bear this, right? This lack of patience that's within me, God's given me everything I need to correct that. I need to walk in it. I need to apply the scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to continue to cleanse me of that sin and to put on the righteousness of Christ, just like you do with whatever sin it still is that kind of drags you down into darkness. Because God's given us everything that we need. So we don't have to overcomplicate what we do as we await the return of the Lord. We simply do that which God has already equipped us to do. Live a life of holiness and godliness to the Lord. As we wait, he says in verse 12, waiting for, and then one more thing I want to explain from this text, hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, so far we've talked about waiting, but Peter adds something in here that when you read, it may take you off guard for a minute. How in the world do I hasten the the day of God? How do I hasten the return of the Lord? It's one thing for me to wait patiently. It's one thing for me to follow in the perils of Jesus and be one of these faithful servants who is waiting patiently, obediently, living a holy life as God intends me to be. That's one thing, but it's a whole other thing for me to hasten it. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know everything there is to know about how we do this because I'm just going to tell you that the day of the Lord is for the Lord, (laughs) 
And, and we, we could get into some really complicated ideas about this. I, I just want to give you one that I think I can speak on from authority of Scripture and just say, here's one of the ways we hasten the day of the Lord. Trusting that the sovereign plan of God that is working providentially in our world is taking into account already anything that I would do to hasten the day of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 24, which is a chapter dedicated to the day of the Lord, the Lord Jesus says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So how do we hasten the day of the Lord? There are probably many things that we could talk about that we could do through our prayers. Not my will, but yours, your kingdom come, all of these things. But I think the most practical thing that we can do is that we can proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth because we are told that the gospel will be proclaimed to all of the nations, then the end will come. This is why we take serious the commission of God for our church to proclaim the gospel, not only to our neighbors, but to the nations. Because by doing so, in a way that I don't fully comprehend, we are hastening the day of the Lord. Verse 13 says, but according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Where Peter ends his argument here in verse 13 is looking to the consummation of the kingdom of God. He's looking towards the end, which John reveals to us in his revelation in Revelation chapter 21, writing about this day where all will be made new. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth with the first heaven. The first had passed away and the sea was no more. Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be there, uh, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Peter is looking to that which John sees in his revelation, what we know as glorification, the day where we will be like Jesus, fully, completely. The Baptist faith and message defines glorification as the culmination of salvation and as the final blessing and abiding state of the redeemed. Glorification, not only of the saints, but of the entire universe aligned to the will of God where his dwelling is now with us. And on that, we patiently wait, obedient to him, so that we will not be caught off guard as we live holy and godly lives in the meantime. So what? I have a question specifically for you today, Christian. Have I grown tired in my waiting for Christ's return? Or am I persevering in a way that points others to Christ? You may be hearing this today and be under conviction because you say, I've grown tired. Maybe you've wondered, were the false teachers right? Is Jesus really going to return? It's been such a long time. 
And there's no promise that it will, that it will end anytime soon. This 2,000 years that has passed since, the, since Jesus went to, to heaven to be with the Father may just be a drop in the bucket of the full amount of time before Jesus returns. Or it could be today. But because of this amount of time, we may have grown tired. We may have grown impatient. We may have grown disobedient. We may have fallen asleep. We may have not put enough oil in our lamps. We may have begun to squander the talents and resources that God has given us on our own pleasures instead of on his instruction. Instead of persevering as we have been called to do in a way that points others to Christ. In conclusion, I want us to point us to what Peter says, really kind of as his thesis to his first letter to the church in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you called on him, as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This has been the theme of our series in First Peter, that our Second Peter, that we must persevere as God's promises are proclaimed through our holy lives to those whom His patience is also extended. So, what do we do? We don't give up hope. We don't lose heart. We don't grow impatient. We live holy and obedient lives, trusting in this, that through that, that through that, the patience of God will extend to others who are dead in their trespasses and sin, and God will make them alive in Christ. And they too then will begin to live holy and godly lives, continuing until the return of Jesus. I wonder today, is that you? You say, Lord, will you help me? Will you help me today, Lord, to, to not allow my impatience to overtake me, to not allow my doubts to overtake me, but will you, will you help me, God, to be diligent in my obedience and diligent in my holiness and diligent in my godliness? Will you help me to do that, God? Because through that, someone else will hear the good news of Jesus and will believe and be saved. Maybe even today, somebody sitting in this room, hears the good news of Jesus, that he has the ability to call you from darkness to light, to give you a new heart that seeks after him and to one day, you will live with him for all eternity. That promise can be for you today. If you will believe if you'll turn to him in faith and repentance, trusting this, that his patience is extended towards you, my friend. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you do help us. You help this impatient pastor. 
Will you help these impatient people who admittedly we grow tired? Admittedly we wonder. Strengthen our faith, we pray. Thank you, God, that through your Holy Spirit, here on this Pentecost Sunday, we were reminded that your Holy Spirit dwells in us, giving us everything that we need for life and godliness. Would we walk in it, I pray. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.